years of uh, partnering with this church and so thankful for the partnership we have, the generosity of this church, uh, the way that this church welcomes students. And just, you know, to give you an update, uh, UConn is full of life again this year, which is great. Uh, last year, it was kind of a ghost town over there, and uh, the students are back, and it's been a really, a really exciting time for us of uh, meeting lots of new students, uh, kind of reforming and regathering community on campus. And so uh, please keep us in your prayers as we continue to kind of start this year and uh, continue to try to meet as many students and bring in as many students as we can. Um, I brought, uh, I've been giving out uh, the book Gentle and Lowly to students this year. I got like 200 copies for free this summer. And I know many of you have read this book, but I brought a case of 64, which is on the back table. Uh, this book, Gentle and Lowly, has been recommended from up here numerous times. I'm recommending it to you now, so I don't know what else you need to read <laughs> this book, but it's a really excellent book. It has short chapters. I think it has 21 short chapters, so it's, you can read it devotionally uh, for your time of devotions or however you like, but I'd really encourage you, take one, take two, there's plenty to go around, uh, so please take one. But uh, this morning we're going to be talking about guilt. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51, which is like the guilt psalm. It's the psalm uh, that David writes at his worst, when he's at his worst, and I just want us to consider this morning, what do we do with our guilt? Uh, we all come with day-to-day -day guilt, the more common, you know, the selfishness and the greed and the pride, the gossip, uh, other things that uh, kind of are more common. And many of us bring to this text and into worship today uh, the time long ago when we lost control or the time when we did lasting damage, uh, when we said things we couldn't unsay or when we did things we couldn't undo, where actual damage was done, and it was done by us, and we carry it with us even to this day. How do we deal with that? Uh, thankfully, you know, the Bible is amazing. Uh, God's man, David, you know, there's, David's what, like top five guys in the Bible? Like, this guy is definitely God's man, and yet uh, the Bible tells us of his massive failure uh, we read about it in 2 Samuel 11 when David should be off fighting with his men, but he stays back in Jerusalem and he happens to see a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing and he has to have her. And so he takes her, although she is the wife of one of his best men, and he impregnates her and he tries to cover it up. But Uriah, her husband, is too good of a guy for that to work. And so David has Uriah purposely killed in battle. And David doesn't even see that any of that is wrong at this point yet until God sends his prophet Nathan uh, to tell him, to show him how offensive and wrong it is. And it's in uh, the aftermath of that that David, God's man, uh, writes Psalm 51. Uh, a psalm is meant for worship. So this is meant for God's people to bring to worship and prayer. So let me read Psalm 51 for us, and let's consider it for a while. Uh, psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Uh, Let me pray for us as we come to the word. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, would you send your spirit to apply it to our hearts? Uh, We come guilty before you. Uh, We pray that you would show us something this morning of your heart for guilty people, your heart for sinners, uh, how to deal with our guilt. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A while ago, I heard uh, about a man named Oskar Gruning from Germany. Uh, He, Oskar Gruning, was a accountant at Auschwitz, the concentration camp, and so his job was to look through the pockets of people in Auschwitz before they went to the gas chambers and collect money and what was of value in their pockets uh, for the Nazis. And so he did this during World War II, and when the war ended, he was able to kind of get away from being implicated for a long time and actually made his life about, his later life, about uh, just bringing, uh, kind of exposing some of the awfulness of the Holocaust and uh, you know, bearing light on what exactly had happened and how awful it was. And yet the problem with that was that it implicated, as he shared his own personal account, it implicated him in the horrors of what happened, so much so that the people out there that were still seeking justice eventually found him and he was eventually tried, and he was found guilty late in life of 300,000 uh, accessory to murders. And he was put in prison at the age of 96. Uh, because guilt doesn't just go away. You can do a lot of good things in your life, and your guilt won't just go away. And living with guilt, as many of us know, can suck the life out of us. Uh, it can be hard to ever rest knowing that there's guilt that's undealt with, that's out there. 
Uh, this was Martin Luther's story and why he became a monk. He became a monk because he knew he had all this guilt and he thought, well, how can I get rid of this guilt? Well, I can become a monk, not just any monk. I can be like the monk of all monks. And then maybe uh, my conscience will let me go. And it was in that context that he actually found uh, the gospel of free grace. Uh, There's a movie, a really powerful movie, really gut-wrenching movie called Manchester by the Sea. It's a New England movie set right here in Massachusetts. And it's a movie about guilt. It's about a man who uh, has, he is responsible it's his fault that an accident took place, which, without giving away too much, res- resulted in the death of several of his loved ones. It was an accident, but it's his fault. He's re- it was his negligence. He's responsible. And in the movie, it flashes back to when that happened, and he's questioned in the police station after the tragic accident, and they're asking him what happened, and he's very forthcoming. He just says every detail about what happened, and it's very clear that it's his fault, and he's expecting to be in prison, but uh, the cops explained to him, well, it was a horrible mistake, but we're not going to crucify you. And so as he realizes that he's not going, they tell him he can leave. And as he's walking out of the police station, he reaches for one of the policemen's gun in an attempt to just end his own life right there. Why? Because he wants to be punished. He doesn't want to live with the guilt. Okay, living with guilt can torment us. We want it to go away and we'll gladly be punished or punish ourselves for all of our lives. Uh, so maybe, you know, maybe you're like Martin Luther and the way you kind of do it is a religious way. Uh, maybe you do it in kind of a different way. You know, maybe guilt is just the reason you have to uh, get everything right in life. You know, maybe guilt is the reason your life has to be so, so tidy. Or because if, if it's not, then someone might suspect that you're dirty underneath. Maybe guilt is the reason you can't rest. Uh, Maybe it's the reason you can't be fully known by anyone. Uh, So the question is, what do we do with our guilt? And the template is just laid out for us in Psalm 51. This is how God wants us to, what he wants us to do with our guilt. And what we see is three things. We see honest confession, plea for mercy, and confident worship. All right, so first of all, honest confession Uh, What we see in the psalm is that David doesn't gloss over what he's done. Uh, Verse 2, it says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And iniquity is this word, it it refers to the grossness of sin, just like the yuck of sin. And wash me thoroughly uses a verb, it's normally associated with laundry. So what he's essentially doing is comparing himself to a dirty garment in these opening uh, verses of Psalm 51. And there's no cover-up. And there's no denial. There's no blame shifting. Uh, the blame only falls on him, unlike many of the, the apologies we hear today, the public apologies, where people say things like, well, mistakes were made. Uh, David doesn't do that. He says mistakes were made by me. So we see this radical honesty, but uh, within this honest confession, uh, he directs his confession primarily at God. In verse 4, he says something interesting. He says, I've sinned against you only. 
interesting thing. What if like Uriah's brother read this? I wonder what he would think, you know. Uh, seems like you sinned against Uriah, David. Um, but the point is, obviously David has sinned against Uriah, but the offense, because God is God, because he is holy, because he made Uriah and everyone else, uh, the offense to God is so, so great. And what we need to see here is that, you know, confession to God and confession to one another go hand in hand. You can't really do one without the other. The, other. the way you're able to confess to others is if you do this work, this uh, heart work of confessing to God first. And so David goes straight to God, uh, confesses to God, and he locates the problem, though, within himself. Uh, in verse 5, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, I'm the problem. It's just in me. My heart is bent in on itself, and it runs really deep. Like, this wasn't a fluke what happened. <laughs> it was bound to happen. Uh, I had, in seminary, I had a friend, a Scottish friend, who was going back to the UK to be a pastor, and uh, his wife, uh, him and his wife were expecting a child, and one time I went up to him when I found out that he had, they were expecting, and I said, you know, do you know what you're going to have? And he said to me, uh, it's a sinner, that's all we know. <laughs> and uh, it's true. It's correct theology, uh, radical honesty. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just the reality. That's where we have to go with our guilt is we need to locate the problem within ourselves if we're going to move anywhere forward. There's a movie, kind of a silly movie from the 90s called Liar Liar with Jim Carrey. I don't know if you remember it. I don't like recommend it or anything. It's just a silly movie, but uh, it's the story of a, Jim Carrey plays this lawyer. He's really corrupt. He is a liar. And uh, he's so full of himself that he actually misses his son's birthday party one time. And at the party, his son, when he makes a wish as he blows out his candle, says, I wish my dad could just not tell a lie for a whole day. And that's the movie. Uh, that's so... Uh, it's magical. It works. And, and he starts, and so Jim Carrey's character, it's a comedy, and you know, he's in court, and he's trying to lie, but the truth comes out every time. And he even just says things that he's thinking honestly uh, that make the situation really uncomfortable. And there's this one scene where him and his wife are actually arguing about how he missed his son's birthday party, and he just blurt, you know, he's trying to lie to cover for himself, and instead he just blurts out, I am a bad father. And it's the turning point of the whole movie. He's never been able to honestly say who he is. Uh, and it does change things for him. Uh, you know, as you think about David, you know, David's sin is massive, right? He commits adultery. He commits murder. It's really despicable. Uh, but lest we think, you know, we're below that, uh, there's a commentator on that passage, uh, Dale Ralph Davis. And this is what he says. He says, if you begin to say, oh, but I could never dot, 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 then you have already taken the first step in your fall. Don't ever be surprised at what you are capable of. So Christians are people that when they see the worst sins on display out there, think that could so easily be me. And when they sin, they're quick to confess uh, to God and to others. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, can you confess honestly? Can you say to people and to God, you know, I'm sorry, I have a problem. 
I can't fix myself. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Okay, so that's honest confession. But next to what we see in Psalm 51 is a plea for mercy. And what is remarkable about God that we see in this passage is that God is actually attracted to pleas for mercy. There's a kind of the one reality show I watch sometimes is Shark Tank. Any Shark Tank fans out there? Uh, it's a show about... Uh, there's these, they get these like four billionaires, investors, to kind of sit up front and these bit small business owners come and present their businesses for investment. And so they say things like, well, this is my business and I'm looking for a million dollars for a 20% stake in my company or something like that. And they present and, and the, f- the four billionaires, the sharks, uh, they have the money. They can easily invest, uh, but they're looking to make more money. So they care about the numbers. They care about, like, is this a good investment? And they're not, they don't care about feelings at all. They care about money. And so sometimes what happens in this show is that the numbers don't add up. You know, they're always asking, like, you know, what's your sales over what period of time? What's your profit margin? Because they're trying to figure out, is this a good investment? And uh, sometimes it's obvious that the numbers just don't work out and that's not a good investment. But then what happens is that the business owner will kind of just do this plea for mercy and they'll just be like, it's for a really good cause or, you know, well, I could really use the money though. And the sharks just all roll their eyes and they're just like, get out of here, please. Uh, God is not like a shark. God is really different from a shark. We see it in the the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, where all the tax collector can do is say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the one who goes home justified. Uh, Think about uh, all the celebrities that fail, athletes, and there's some massive failing in their life. And what you hear about is like, well, Nike dropped them as their endorsement. Nike dropped them. Or some other company said, we don't want you endorsing us anymore. Uh, We don't want to endorse you anymore. Because why? They don't want bad people as their spokesman. God only wants bad people as their spokesman. You know why? Because if bad people do anything right, guess who gets the glory? Okay, so God is attracted to pleas for mercy, and David gives them. He says, cleanse and restore me. In verse uh, 7, he says, purge me. Uh, it's a word that literally means de-sin me. So what he's saying, de-adultery me, God. De-murder me. Uh, you know, it's, he understands, like, I can't go back and fix this. Uriah is dead. But maybe you can somehow, God. Uh, he says, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant used to cleanse lepers at the time. Uh, he says, blot out my transgressions. Uh, it's, it's a word meaning to wipe away, like erase from a book. In other words, one of the main differences between how Christians deal with guilt and how everyone else deals with guilt is that Christians are people that have given up on themselves. I have a pastor friend named Ricky Jones, and he tells a story about being like 10 years old or so, and Christmas is coming around, and he's feeling pretty bad about the fact that he can't buy presents for his parents. Like, he's got no money He's 10, though. He's kind of tired of, like, drawing a picture for a present every year. And so he's uh, noticeably upset, kind of pouting around the house, and his mom figures out what's going on. And and so she she looks out the window one day, and she says, well, there sure are a lot of sticks in the yard. 
I'd pay someone $10 if they were to pick up all the sticks in the yard within earshot. And he immediately like runs and he's, and it's his job anyway. Like it's part of his chores. Uh, but he, and he, so he goes out and uh, he, cle- he cleans up the yard and he gets his $10. And then a little later his mom says, you know, I was thinking about doing some shopping later. Would you want to come? And he's like, of course I want to come, you know. And, uh, and so they're going shopping and he's in the car and she says, uh, you know, this store, uh, they have some really nice necklaces that I was noticing. I wish I could have one. And, and, and so they go shopping and split up and he goes and he finds the necklaces, which are conveniently $9. And so he buys a necklace and he goes home and uh, he, the box he has is gigantic and he fails at wrapping it so many times that he runs out of wrapping paper until he brings it to his mom crying and just says, can you wrap this for me, please? And so his mom wraps the gift. And so on Christmas Day, uh, he presents a gift to his mom, which she has picked out, bought, and wrapped. Do you see how that's us with God? He's the one who does everything to make things right. You know, think of the gap between us and God. How could you possibly do anything that would actually make it up to him? That would take away your guilt? How could you possibly cover up the mess that you've made uh, for a God who sees everything? So I want to ask you, how are you trying to make it up to God today? How are you living like you believe in karma instead of mercy? And how is it wearing you out? How is it taking away all your joy? Uh, If you are guilty, the only thing that will take it away, that will fix you, is honest confession and crying out to God for mercy. And so in verse 10, David actually says, create in me a clean heart. In other words, do a miracle. Because only God can create. Only God is a creator. And so how does God do it? Well, about a thousand years later, he becomes a man. And he's put on trial and he's found guilty, although many, many religious people try to find one thing wrong with them, with him, and they can't. And so he's crucified between two actual bad guys, actual criminals. Why? So he could de-murder us. So he could de-adultery us. And in a miracle of his grace, he takes our place. Our guilt goes away because Jesus bears it. It's not there anymore. If you're a Christian, your guilt is not there anymore. Uh, justice has no hold on you anymore. I used to not understand this, and I was never, you know, I never really, like, as a kid growing up in church, it, the way I viewed it was that, like, you know, sometimes if you did some bad things, like, God might look the other way, and you could kind of sneak by or something like that, but he wasn't going to do that every time, so you better watch out. And what this is, is very different from that because this is about justice. This is about God being just. You know, God sees everything, but he's just. And what it means is that he will not punish the same sin twice. So you are not guilty, not because, you know, God happened to look the other way. God was definitely looking, and he was looking at his own son paying the price for your sin. So now I want to look at the worship and the confidence that results. Uh, Did you notice in the psalm how quickly David moves from confessing his horrible sins 
to realizing that God could use him. In verse 3, he says, my sin is ever before me. And yet in verse 13, 10 verses later, he's like, I can teach people about you, God. In verse 15, he's like, I want to praise you. Okay, the way you can tell if you've actually taken your guilt to God, the way you, you can tell if you've received his mercy, is if the result is a desire to worship him and a desire for others to know his love like you have known it. To know it through you. Uh, we can see it in John Newton. We sang his hymn, Amazing Grace, uh, earlier. John Newton was a slave trader. He was a bad guy, too, until he met Jesus. And uh, John Newton has a book of letters. You can buy the letters of John Newton. Really neat book. And one of the letters is called Advantages of Remaining Sin. Really fascinating letter. And in, in it, he's talking about Christians and their sin. And he says, some of the clearest proofs they have had of God's excellence have been occasioned by the mortifying proofs they have had of their own vileness. They would not have known so much of them if they had not known so much of themselves. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying you can, the, the sin can be the occasion to finally know the true love of God. And worship becomes a response to the mercy of God rather than a way to try and encounter him. And so the psalm winds down, and in verses 16 and 17, there's this discussion about sacrifices. And what David's saying is, is that it's not about, you know, the exact particulars of what you do in worship so much as it is about the heart you bring to worship. And if worship is dry to you, if worship is just always dry, I can almost guarantee you that you have not spent much time considering the ways you have offended God and been met by his mercy or that it's at least been a long time since that happened. But if you will honestly confess, if you do have nothing going for you except the mercy of God, uh, then what I want to tell you today is that God wants to use you. He wants to use you. He wants you to be the person to show Jesus to people, to show that God is merciful, that he can take away guilt and give rest. Uh, that he can set you free. You know who he doesn't want to use? People that think they don't need help. People that have confidence in themselves. People that think that they're better than most. And so David demonstrates this humble confidence in God. Go back to verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. You see what he's saying there? For all his unworthiness, he knows that he belongs still. You know, he's saying, like, I know who I am, but I know who you are, God. I know that I can count on you to make me clean. Uh, doesn't everyone need to be clean? To be made clean? Uh, will you allow God to take away your guilt today and every day? Will you allow him to set you free? Uh, will you confess freely and boldly knowing that this is how we actually show the world around us the beauty of the God we serve. Will you do that today and every day? Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. Uh, would your mercy change us to be people that can be honest about who we are? Uh, would the world come to know more of who you are through us? 
uh, through our honest confession, through our not having a need uh, to present ourselves as tidy and clean uh, because we have been made clean by you. Uh, change us at our hearts. In our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.